0: Well, I've had the joy of pastoring here at Village Church for almost 20 years, and it's crazy. Some of you are like, that means we're old, because <laughs> you were here when I was 21 years old, <laughs> but um, I, I was writing down just so many of the perks and benefits of longevity And then I I started to write out um, some of the biggest challenges, and I want to share with you actually what one of the most emotional challenges for me, um, pastoring in one place for 20 years, it is seeing many people that I love sincerely struggle with their faith. To watch doubts just creep in and they don't know what to do with them. And, and so many people, they keep their doubts in their own heads and their own hearts and they don't process out loud. So it's just them and whatever cultural influence is helping them work through it. And most often, that's not for their good or the glory of God. What has been even more challenging that, than that has been watching many people not just struggle, but abandon their faith altogether. And so, what happens when you're in a, an area for a long period of time is that you're around those people. And, and you get to see their life, and you get to see the actual implications of them giving their heart, their mind, their soul, and their body to the ways of this world. And, and all of you in this room, I am positive, if you love Jesus, you know someone in your family or your friendships or in your circle, and, and you've just watched them move from being kind of in the orbit of Christianity to giving themselves over to the world. And it just, it messes with your heart because you love them, and it's an excruciating And so I've wondered, is it possible to develop uh, some kind of discipleship strategy to inoculate particularly young people from some of the most unnecessary doubts and struggles? Because what I find when I hear so many particularly young people's doubts and struggles, the answers are simple. They've been tricked by so much ridiculous, illogical, nonsensical, non-fact-based propaganda. And so if we can like train them younger, what does it look like to help them see the best arguments from opposing sides and train them to think biblically? And so like, this has been a passion of mine. And so over the last four years, our staff have been working to develop a very simple, cohesive strategy. And and we had to answer a whole bunch of questions, but one of them I want to share with you is this. What are are the primary causes of spiritual doubt? And there were four that came up more than anything else. I want to share these with you. Number one is suffering. And if you are a false Christian, like if, if maybe you're a Christian on the outside, but you, you're, you've never really trusted in Christ, maybe it's your cultural Christian, nothing will root you out quicker than suffering. And if you're a true Christian, nothing will expose the darkness and the depths of sin that is still in your heart like suffering. Suffering is exposing And every one of you in this room, if you have not suffered in a big way, just wait, because you don't get to get to the end of your life without suffering. And so what suffering does is this weird curse and a gift. It's a curse because it's miserable, but it's a gift because it shows you immediately what is inside of your heart in a way that no other human experience does. But what happens when people suffer is most people, for a short period of time, Christians, may wag their finger at God. If you loved me, where were you? How could you? Et cetera. But a true Christian, inevitably, the Holy Spirit is going to rein that in, and you're going to bend the knee to the suffering that the Lord has either allowed, ordained, or permitted in your life. If you're not a true Christian, what actually ends up happening is the bitterness towards God grows and grows and the wagging of your finger never stops and inevitably it just kind of pulls you away. The second primary cause of spiritual doubt is unanswered questions. Doubters and doubting hearts require answers. Like this, this is my nature. I'm a doubter. I'm a skeptic. And I will investigate and investigate and investigate until I get the best answer. Some of you have the gift of faith. Your, your belief comes easy, and the rest of us are frustrated with you, but we love you. <laughs> what I found though is, is that as I research and I hunt down answers to big questions, that the Bible and its context and the history of Judeo-Christianity have provided incredible, actually, the best, most logical word-rooted truths, and most people just don't know where to get them, which is why all the way back in 2015, we started Village Church Q&A podcast. Many of you know the melody, you know? And like 700 years later, we, or 700 years, 700 episodes, <laughs> where am I? 700 episodes later, we moved to video because the questions are unrelenting, and, and just when you think you've answered everything, people have more questions. And one of the best things that we can do is honor people's questions and then open up God's word and then show it to you and say, like, look at God's word. It is good and right and true. And then when they say, but what about, we honor the but what abouts, and we dig in deeper into those because here's the deal. So many young people, they just don't have their basic questions answered. So when suffering, other things come. It draws us away. Here's the third primary cause of spiritual doubt. It is idols of the heart. An idol of the heart is basically something that you love more than God. And you guys already know this. Like, if you're a Christian, this is, this is Christianity 101, Gospel 101. Our hearts are evil and rebellious, and they push God away, and that evil and rebellion needs to be overcome by the love of God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But we are rebels. And when you trusted in Christ, did he get rid of all your idols? No way. No way you're not even aware of most of them. Like they're still there and the Lord in his grace has not shown you the full scope of the idolatry that is resident inside of each of our hearts. That's why Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, if you've been around long enough, you've heard me give this speech a thousand times. The heart does not want your mind to know what's going on. So who does the heart deceive? You, your mind. And so the heart is always up to something, chiefly protecting its idols. And here's what it does not want. It does not want the mind to know what's going on, really. And so here's, what, here's how I know what's in control of your life. It is not by what you tell me your intentions are. I know what is controlling your life by what you do. Because your behavior is driven by your heart, not your intentions. And so somebody will do one thing and they'll say to me, well, this was my intention. I'm like, but that is not what you did over and over again. There is something at work that is blinding your mind from seeing what's really, really going on. Uh, I I am sad to say I have watched so many heart idols at work. I could write, I think, a book on how heart idols actually work and I'll just, I'll give you like the simple outline of what this book would be. Don't worry, I'm not writing a book right now. But here's the playbook. Cover up, distract, destroy threats, feign innocence, accuse others. Recognize that? Cover up, distract, destroy threats, feign innocence, accuse others. And, and without repentance of a hard idol, even as a Christian, that's what it does. That's how it works. Here's my Achilles heel when it comes to heart idols. I can see them in you. I can't see them in me. Which is why I need truth tellers in my life to tell me when I have a heart idol. But this, this is like the reality that here's what happens, right? Your heart wants something. And then all of a sudden you read the Bible, you hear the teaching of Jesus or the apostles, and it tells you that thing that your heart wants, that's not really good. So, your heart idol will seek to push away that truth as hard as it can so that it can still have what it wants. And if that truth is the Bible, then you need to maybe learn a new interpretation. That's what your heart idol says. Or maybe that book of the Bible or that author wasn't inspired. Or maybe nobody's ever really understood it. Or maybe it just can't be true. Or maybe I just need to put the Bible aside. Or maybe the Bible was written by human authors and there's a lot of errors in it. Or maybe the Bible isn't true at all. Maybe I like Jesus, but not the Bible. Do you get what I'm going? You know what? I actually just I'm not a Christian anymore. Do you see? And the heart wants what the heart wants, and it will do anything to get it. Heart idols. Number 4. Primary cause of spiritual doubt is difficult truth. And I think for this next generation, this is the primary heart this is the primary cause of spiritual doubt. Sometimes when we hear difficult truth, we don't have categories for it. We're American Christians. So when a 2,000-year-old Jew tells us what reality is, we don't have categories for it. So last week, I had the joy to preach on election, predestination, being chosen, etc. And some of you, I mean, honestly, Village, you were amazing. Nobody came up and punched me. Nobody yelled at me. Nobody rebuked me. I tried to be as loving as I can. But but for some of us, when we have to come face-to-face with Jesus' teaching, it's like, whoa, that's new. I need time. I got to process that. And that's, that's really challenging. And sometimes Jesus says things that are just offensive to American logic. And so last week, I had the joy to get up and talk about that. But when, when there's hard truth, and not only does it contradict American logic, but it goes after your heart idol, naturally doubt ensues, and then people push away Christianity well, why doesn't Jesus agree with modern blank theory? He's not concerned about that. Jesus is teaching what is true and objective for all of eternity, not modern theories that come and go. And so here we are, we have these difficult truths, and young people hear it, and it tells them you can't have everything your heart wants. And we get mad because it's hard. And I gotta tell you, again. I'm a pastor, so I'm supposed to be holy. My heart wants terrible things. And the Bible regularly tells me no. And so I have to say, yes, Jesus, you have given me truth, hard truth, through the word of God. And it, it is in opposition to my heart's desires. But my heart isn't God. God is God. And so my heart needs to bend the knee to God. That is really hard truth. Right, right there, there are some people who are here right now who are going to listen to this later, and they're going to go, I am not ready for that. And I get that, because the heart wants what it wants. Let's play a game together before we move on. Um, I, I want to go through these four things, and I want you to identify which one of these four things has caused the most doubt in you. Now, if you are one of those really awesome pe- people who are like, like, um, I never doubt, I perfect faith, sweet. Hypothetically for you, if there was going to be one of these four that were going to catch you up, which one of the four would it be? Now, at the end, I have a prophecy, and I'll tell you a little funny story about the prophecy, but I, I, there's something I think is going to happen, and we're going to test it out. You ready? Okay, so i want you to raise your hand if the primary cause of your personal spiritual doubt is or would be suffering. Raise your hand. It's great. Actually, very consistent with first service so far. I right, raise your hand if unanswered questions would be your primary cause of doubt. All right, good. All right, now raise your hand if idols of the heart would be your primary cause of doubt. Wow. Okay. Holy moly. This is a bad church. Let's <laughs> get All right, raise your hand if difficult truth is going to be your primary cause of doubt. Okay, you're going to die when you hear what I just wrote. Okay, so I made a prediction, and I want to just tell you my prediction was so wrong. <laughs> like, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to read it to you verbatim, and then I want to read to you something somebody wrote to me after second service. All right, Prediction. Heart idols will get almost no hands raised. <laughs> so at the beginning of first service, I said something really stupid. I said, it was a joke, but I said, all right, if I'm wrong, uh, it's a prophecy. You can just stone me and kill me. And then I was completely wrong. And then let me, let me tell you, so somebody made a, a fake meme, and it says, breaking news, local pastor stoned. <laughs> Pastor Michael Fueling, 42, I'm 41, I'll be 42 next week, but was stoned during the 9 a.m. service at the Village Church of Barlet this morning. He apparently prophesied during his sermon and was found to be incorrect. The congregation immediately took up stones. Michael was last seen prone on the platform, pelted by stones as the video feed was shut off. When contacted Pastor, Pastor Michael's condition about it, Pastor Matt Souls, who supplied the rocks and led the stoning... <laughs> We're not sure, he's still lying on the platform. Our youth group is sponsoring a pancake breakfast right now, so we're all very busy. Check here for more information as it becomes available. <laughs> that that was the greatest text I've ever received between services in my entire life. Lord Jesus. Open up your Bibles to John 6, 33. So I shared with you last week that John 6 is, hands down, the most controversial chapter in all the Gospels. In fact, the the things that Jesus teaches in John 6 have led to very significant arguments for 2,000 years amongst Christians. Uh, Last week, we talked about Jesus' unrelenting agenda to make sure that you understand everyone in hell is responsible, nobody in heaven is responsible for their salvation. That tension alone is just, is very challenging. So the end of John 6, here's what we learn. We learn that Jesus is teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. So everything from around verse 33 or so on, this is all taking place in a synagogue in a city called Capernaum. So in John six thirty three in this synagogue, this is not a normal day because if you remember, Jesus just fed the 5,000, but that's 5,000 men as they count. There was probably between 15 and 20,000 total people. Well, Jesus, earlier in John 6, he goes across a river, he gets to Capernaum, and the crowds are following him because this Jesus is able to do miracles and he fed them and they're getting hungry again. So here you are, you're Jesus, you're in a synagogue, and thousands of people show up. Now, if you are the Pharisees who created and generally oversee the doctrine and practice of synagogues, are you excited about Jesus showing up and thousands of his followers? You are not pumped. You already don't like the guy. You'd like to kill him. You've been working, conspiring behind the scenes to end his life. And so here you are. So this is sort of like some rock star preacher showing up at Village Church last second. And then 2,000 people being here. And those of you who attend here, you're like, we can't even get in the parking lot because of this guy. That's sort of what it probably feels like to the Pharisees. And Jesus, as he steps back and he observes this crowd, there are basically three kinds of people. And one of the perk of omniscience, perks of omniscience is that you see past people's words and you can see right into their hearts. I mean, that feels to me like a curse to know what everybody's motivation is real time. And so he sees a group of people. And the first group of people he sees really, they're there because they want to see a miracle, they, they want to see a sign, dance monkey. They're here to see him perform. And Jesus looks in their hearts and he's just like, I'm not entertainment for you. Now I'm able to do incredible things and I wanted to feed you and you were hungry and I want you to have every single fighting chance to know who I really am and believe in me. But like, you are not here for the right reasons. And then he looks out and there's another crew of people. In fact, in the book of John, he calls this group the Jews. And the Jews is like a, a four letter word for John. John. Typically what it represents actually is the Pharisees and their entire tradition. And, and so they're there at this synagogue and, and here's what he knows. He peers right into their hearts and here's what he, he sees. They want to kill him. In fact, what they want to do is they want to catch him saying something heretical so that they can have every legal justification to stone him to death. And then you have a third group. And you you realize by the end of John 6 that this third group is probably the minority. And they are are the ones who just, they believe. And they want to know Jesus. And they want to be around him. And so we're going to watch. Jesus is going to do something, I think, really fascinating. And by the end of this chapter, everyone is going to be laid bare and exposed. So look at John 6.33. And as we read there, you're going to notice an unusual but dominant theme in John 6, and it's the theme of bread. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, I love this, sir, give us this bread always. All right. For the bread... Of God is He. And that tells us that the bread of God is not an actual loaf of bread, but it is a person. This is going to become very important. Because to understand how this chapter ends, we need to just nail down this fact Does Jesus believe that there's a person who's going to become bread? No. Does Jesus believe that there's a loaf of bread somewhere that's going to become a person? The answer is no. All right. 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Go down to verse 48. He says this again. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna, that's a special kind of bread, in the wilderness, and they died. And so the manna bread, it satisfied them for a little while, but then they needed more of it. Now, can we just agree again on something really important? Does Jesus believe that he's a loaf of bread? No. Again, you might think I'm just being like patronizing and condescending. I am not. This is going to be very important. Jesus believes That he is the bread of life. Now, this is called a metaphor. And as you grow up, you learn that when people speak in metaphors, they're not speaking literally. This is, again, very important. We go to verse 50. This is the bread that came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and never die. Let me ask you a different question. In any world or in any way is Jesus promoting cannibalism. (laughs) Can we just agree? Like, he's not okay with it. It's not even in his brain. This is a metaphor. Okay, so maybe they're not quite getting it. And apparently they're not, because if you go to verse 51, he has to say it again. I am the living bread. The one that came down from heaven. There wasn't a loaf the loaf came down to heaven, metamorphosized into me. That is not how this worked, okay? I am the living bread that came out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, metaphor, he will live forever. And the bread, metaphor, that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, okay, in the metaphor, what does the bread symbolize? Jesus' flesh, his body that was going to be killed, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And then eating the bread symbolizes, all throughout John, believing in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So in the metaphor, when you believe, that's eating. And what are you eating? The body of Jesus or the bread, right? You get the point. It's a metaphor. You guys are so smart. Do you see what is so clearly on this page? Yes. All right. To prepare you for what happens next, let me tell you two stories about my son when he was younger son did you hit your sister no dad I promise son I saw you hit her with my own eyes dad I didn't hit her I slapped her a hit has a closed fist. A slap has an open hand. I did not hit her. I slapped her. <laughs> Have your children ever taken anything you've said literally just to antagonize you? <laughs> this kid. Let me tell you my favorite one. You know how your kids can just become victims so easily? What is me. Well, okay. You know how adults can become victims so easily? Apparently it's just a human thing, but like, I don't know, if you don't discipline it out of your children or train them out of it, eventually it just sticks with you. All right. One day I said to my son, quote, bro, you are acting like a victim, stop it. He responded, you mean you're going to kill me and I'm going to become a victim? (laughs) No. No. That is not what I said. You said, I was going to become a victim, and if I'm going to become a victim, then someone is going to kill me. (laughs) My son learned a genius technique in argumentation. It goes like this. When I speak metaphorically, he takes it literally. Then he can deflect any conversation away from the issue and toward me being confusing telling him I'm going to murder him? <laughs> then when I say I'm not, now the issue is well then you're a liar. But you said is this genius? Like a little lawyer getting ready to like prosecute. <laughs> now did he know what was really going on? Did he understand what I was really actually trying to say? And sometimes, and then here I am I'm like, I'm not a liar but I said it here. I'm like, well, I fell I fell for it. Oh, I'm so stupid. I watched the Jews do the same thing to Jesus. The Jews then disputed among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Okay. This wasn't like a private conversation where they went over to the side, okay? Here's what they're doing. This is like Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. They have a debate, right? And the debate where all the questions are pre-written and the answers are only allowed to be given in a certain category uh, uh, of political answers, right? And then we all get to watch as if it's some kind of like, wow, off-the-cuff kind of thing. Not so. It's actually all planned to implant questions and then propaganda answers in your brain so you regurgitate them. This wasn't like a pure debate, So they all gather around, and then all of the people get to listen to the Pharisees, the Jews, debate about what's really going on. Now, some of them may not even have heard Jesus. Some of them might have even come in late. Okay. Did Jesus maybe literally talk about eating his flesh? We're about to wait. Is he implying it? Well, literally, maybe. But metaphorically, Not quite. So, the debate goes on. And the debates are manufactured. And and here's what the Jews are trying to do. They're trying to catch Jesus so they can kill him. Here's their basic mind. Well, Jesus, literally, you said that you have to eat this flesh and drink his blood, and drinking blood is against the law. Therefore, Jesus is a lawbreaker, and we should kill him. Is that at all what's going on in reality? No, not at all. This is ridiculous. What I appreciate about Jesus in this moment is there comes comes a time when you know that any truth given to an enemy is going to be used against you. It will be ripped out of context and you will be slandered and they will use it to achieve their ends. You know this, right? So Jesus looks and he sees A bunch of religious leaders all in the house of Pharisees, theologically speaking. He sees the crowds who just want entertainment and a sign. He sees the Pharisees themselves who want him dead and they're trying to trick him. And then there's a few who just want to know Jesus and believe in him. So what do you do in this moment? What do you do when you're in a moment where you have to respond? And quite honestly, it feels like there's no way to win. Sometimes you need to get wisdom in these moments, but sometimes you just need to shut your mouth and be quiet and walk away. Sometimes the stakes are high enough that you need to do what Jesus did. And I want you to watch what he does because it's really important. Jesus is going to take what they're interpreting it and he's going to double down. Let me give you an illustration of what it, I don't remember how I responded to my son when he said the whole murder victim thing, but here's what I imagine I might have said maybe if I was having a bad day you're right, I'm totally gonna murder you. When you go to sleep, keep one eye open because when you get, you're gonna be a victim in the morning. That's right. Sometimes, sometimes you say something so literal when people do this to you that even your response is so off the wall that it's an implicit rebuke. You know what I'm saying? So here's what Jesus is gonna do. He's gonna double down on this teaching and I think if I could watch this, it would be hilarious. All right, you ready? Verse 53. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Hmm. If that was it, okay, metaphor. He goes on, verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Is he done? Oh, he is doubling down. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What do you think the Pharisees are going to do with these words? They are going to weaponize them. Let's be clear. Do you know what Jesus means? Yes. Are you aware he's speaking in metaphor? Yes. Do the Pharisees know he's speaking in metaphor? Yes. That doesn't matter. They want him dead. They will take him out of context. They will weaponize his words. And what foolish morons. They will end up killing him. Only in the process to have their sins forgiven if they were in Christ and to be exposed fully under, under God. Well, Jesus isn't done. And he, just to make sure the crowds are going to be rightly divided... He goes on to verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's not done. Verse 57. As the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Now, even though he's speaking in very, very, almost like uncomfortable words, he already defined for us what eating and drinking was. That is believing. And what the bread or the body actually is, it is the death of Christ for our sins in our behalf. He's already been clear in laying down the foundations, but his enemies... They are going to manipulate and take him out of context so they can ultimately kill him. But can we be clear? Is Jesus speaking metaphorically? Pretty sure he is. What's interesting is the response. I want to share with you three so-whats and the last so-what I'm kind of saving some of the more like, aspects of this text that have been controversial for 2,000 years for that last so-what. But I want to kind of finish the text as we go through these so-whats. Here's number one. When people reject Jesus' difficult teaching, the problem is not Jesus, but it is the human heart. And he, he, even us, he, he, true believer in Christ, like when you die, you're going to go to heaven. The Spirit of God is in you and there are going to be times when Jesus says something and you go, ooh, mm, you've got to wrestle through it and there's doubt in your heart and the Holy Spirit will bring you to a place of confidence in Christ. But I want you to understand the issue is not with Jesus, it's with the human heart. In everything Jesus is saying right now, the issue is not in the words he's saying, but the heart with which the people are receiving it. So let's look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, when John is using disciples here, you're going to see this played out, but there's two ways he uses it. Same word, but generally speaking, it's going to be the large group of people following him. And then he's going to use the word disciple a little bit later for the 12, the group that he's committed to that walk with him throughout his earthly ministry. Right now, we're talking about the large group of disciples, a whole bunch of people. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who, who can listen to it? What do we do with this? And here's what we know. They're buying the propaganda of, quote, the Jews. If you just listen to Jesus, it is not rocket science. Verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And here's what he's saying. You're taking offense at this, primarily because your heart, it doesn't have the ability to actually see what's really going on. You have ulterior motives. One day you're going to literally watch me ascend into heaven and it is going to blow your mind. But here's the deal. Signs, wonders, and miracles do not have the ability to create saving faith at all. Otherwise, everybody who followed Jesus and saw unbelievable miracle after miracle after miracle would have actually believed in Jesus. And here's what Jesus is saying. You don't believe. I get it. But even if you saw me ascend into heaven, literally float off the ground and disappear into the sky to be with my heavenly father, you still wouldn't believe because the issue is your heart. So then he says in verse 63, just validating the point, it's not signs and wonders and miracles and ascensions that actually create faith and spiritual life. He says this, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 64, but there are some of you who don't believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then he says in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. You want to go deeper there? Go to last week's sermon and so what number two, when a, when a true believer hears something hard, we give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. I need you to hear how this story ends because I am just so in love with how Peter responds to Jesus. Look at verse 66. It says, after this, many of his disciples turn back and no longer watch them. That's like the large group. They're gone. Lots of them. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Here's your off ramp. Everyone else is leaving. They're trying to kill me. What are you saying? Is this too much for you? Simon Peter answered him. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You need to hear what he did not say. He did not say, well, not sure what to do with that teaching. It was real hard. Why didn't he say it? Because he knew that Jesus was speaking metaphorically. He didn't buy the hype, the propaganda, the fake news, from the Pharisees, about what was really going on, right? They were just listening. Here, here's the deal. Most of people's issues with Jesus has to do with how they're hearing other people process what he's actually saying. They just listen to Jesus. And everyone else is like, oh, they in the flesh and drink the blood. And they're like, that's not what he was mean. And so they gave him the benefit of the doubt because they paid attention Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And it's just doubling down that the signs and the wonders, all that stuff. And even sometimes there is somebody who on the outside perceives or to be a true Christian. And over time, maybe through greed like, like Judas, maybe through suffering, the real state of their heart is exposed. But you're going to hear hard things about Jesus. I'll I'll tell you one of the most common factors of when I've struggled the most with my faith over, uh, since I can really start thinking, you know, maybe 25 years, thinking deeply about things. It's always been what other people say Jesus says. Or what other people say the Bible says. Or what a prophet at Michigan State University said was the real meaning of the Hebrew and whatnot. And then I would go look at it, but that's not at all what it says. I've actually been so struck at people's absolute unconscionable freedom to take not just people out of context, but Jesus and the Bible directly. It's crazy. So now I have to like, it's like watching the news. Did they really say that? Was that clip taken out of context? I have to go back and watch context before I believe most things because people are inherently liars when it comes to their larger spiritual, political, or relational agendas. That's hard for me. I'm like, can't we have some integrity? Like, like, my job is to take this thing in context, and the moment I don't, you guys are gonna have my head. Just throwing me right up here. It's gonna be real. We have a whole story written all about it. It's nuts. <laughs> and you're gonna hear hard things. And I wanna encourage you go back to the Word and take the time that the Word requires to understand truthfully. Avoid the hype and the propaganda that is coming at you from so many different people and open the word. I will never forget sitting in my class in Jewish studies with our professor who didn't believe in anything, pure atheist, and I actually thought after one week of sitting in his class, I don't know how to undo or refute anything he taught because I assumed that everything he sourced was true. I actually think he made up his sources I don't think he tried that hard because it took me one week with the help of a pastor to actually get to original sources which were accessible in 1999, let alone today, to realize the guy actually must have been quoting somebody who quoted somebody who quoted somebody that wasn't even rooted in history. And yet here I spent a week of my life saying, have I totally messed up? Have I given my life to a stupid book and a dead savior? And all I had to do was get a little help to get underneath some of this stuff. And so what I've learned is always give Jesus and the Bible the benefit of the doubt. And he has never failed me. And the word in its context has proved to be helpful and true over and over and over again. All right, the last, so what? This is gonna feel like a little bit out of the blue, but let's go for it. This is not about communion. Did you see communion anywhere in this text? This is not a Seder Passover meal where the Last Supper actually took place. There, there is no four glasses of wine, like in the, in, the, in the Seder, the communion cup we celebrate. It's the third cup of wine of four. It's called the cup of redemption, where Jesus said, this blood is the new covenant, right? That whole section right there. That is actually a part of a, a Jewish Seder meal celebrated at Passover. There is nothing here about communion. And why am I telling you this? Because so many of you grew up in traditions where this text was taken to apply to what happens when we partake of communion. And meaning has been imported to it for some reason. We can talk about that later. But meaning has been imported to it that is found nowhere in John 6. In fact, like we're a year away in John 6 from the Last Supper. Like a year away. There's been no talk of this whatsoever. And so what I want you to understand is that when we come to communion... The amount of historical baggage put onto this is unbelievable. All right, so I'm going to say a couple things. I want to help you understand a little bit of context and history to this, and and then I I invite you. Like, I love dialogue. Let's just talk it out. But I, I think there's some really helpful things. In Roman Catholicism, there's a doctrine called transubstantiation. That's a big word. But at the end of the day, here's what it means. It means that when the priest performs certain rituals over a glass of wine and a loaf of bread, that the bread metaphysically, not literally, but metaphysically, changes to the actual body and blood of Jesus, but not literally, but metaphorically, but literally. Okay? I want to read you from the Council of Trent towards the end of the 16th century. Uh, this is um, an authoritative document of the Roman Catholic Church, but I want you to hear this. Because Christ, our Redeemer, said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the church of God, and this holy council now declares again, that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church, has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. So later, Jesus will say, this is my body. And I think we've learned by now that when he says this, he's not speaking literally. He's explicitly speaking metaphorically. He is no more bread than he is a door. And so we understand this intuitively. But some of us have grown up in environments where our salvation was connected to communion. So I grew up Catholic. I'm not picking on it. I mean, I just, what I want you to understand is to be freed from things that are not true. That is the heart behind this. So here's, here's what happens. You grow up and you are taught salvation happens through three things. Number one, faith in Christ and his death and resurrection, amen. Number two is the accrual of good works and number three is participation in the sacraments. And so you have to start with baptism which erases original sin according to their doctrine and then you need to regularly participate in communion, the feasting of the literal body and blood of Christ through transubstantiation so that you might be saved. And I, I just want to tell you that A, that doctrine rooted Here and elsewhere in the metaphors of Jesus is not here. But but number two, you are freed from relying on good works and sacraments for your salvation. The teaching of scripture is that salvation is not for those who are good enough, but for those who have solely trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins who believe in his death and resurrection for their sin and their behalf. It is so important. Now, in the 16th century, there's a guy named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther uh, gave every one of us one of the greatest gifts we could receive. He fought against the Roman Catholic Church to try to bring them back to a pure, simple gospel. And Lutheranism was born out of that, and we are indebted to that faith tradition globally because they fought for, protected, and preserved a pure gospel. What is interesting to me, and again, we have so many ex and current Lutherans here, so again, this is not about salvation at this point, because what Luther rightly understood is that communion doesn't save you. Only the blood of Christ and faith in him saves you. Praise God. But he did come up with a funny doctrine that I was like, I'm not sure when I think about that. And the doctrine is called consubstantiation. And basically, if transubstantiation means the substance transformed, transubstantiation, con means it's with, under, and through. And so it was like, you know, you grow up with something your whole life. You don't really want to let go of it. And you're like, ah, I still want it to be true, kind of. So he, he kind of took, took a little bit of that, but now what he said is that is that the body of Jesus is in, through, and under. The presence of God is all throughout. So when you're partaking of it, you're partaking of the body of Christ, but it was, it was a, a less extreme version. But what he did is he separated it from salvation. I'm so thankful for that. And so if you're Lutheran, you typically have no connection between communion and being saved. But there is this like very real sense that it is very sacred and the presence of Jesus is in, through, and under it. My challenge, my concern is that nowhere is that in the text when you understand Jesus is speaking in metaphor. Now, if you believe that the presence of God is in, through, and under it, is that going to like harm your salvation? Not at all. In fact, are you probably even going to take it a little more seriously than some people who don't believe that do? Pro- probably. Probably. But at the end of the day, here's what happens in in communion. When, When you just listen to the writings of Jesus and Paul, they say, do this in remembrance of me. This is a memorial. So that when the people of God come together, we don't partake of communion to be saved. We don't partake of communion to be closer to Jesus. We partake of communion to root our minds and our hearts every time we gather in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We remember because our souls need to be reminded that we are sinners and our hearts are rebellious. And if it were not for God pursuing us through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, we would never be saved. And so as we come to the communion table, we want to continually reaffirm your heart, your soul, and your mind need regularly to be reminded of the gospel. Some of you are gonna go home later and you're gonna think, oh, God will like me if I'm good enough. God will like me if I'm good enough. And, and the way this manifests in communion is people will say, I can't take communion this week because I've sinned, because I wasn't good enough, because I didn't perform some arbitrary standard of goodness. And there are people regularly who won't touch it because of what they've done this last week. And I just wanna look at people and say, nobody takes communion because they're good enough. We take communion because we are wretched sinners who need to be reminded that the blood of Christ covers us every single day. Some people come to the communion table and they think to themselves, uh, God could never love me. I'm never quite good enough, etc." And whatever, whatever the brokenness is, the gospel kind of re-centers us and says, we're all sinners together. And all of us were saved in the same way, by faith in Christ who pursued us in his death and resurrection. It neutralizes all of this stuff and just centers us every time we come together and it reminds us of what binds us together more than anything else, which is not our good works and it is not village church. It is not your pastors, elders, or deacons. It is Jesus Christ. And so as we get our brains around this, we all, we are all idolaters and we all, we need to be centered. And so when we do this, we do this in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Not to be saved, not to be closer to God, particularly like as if we're consuming him, but to remind our hearts of who he is. And so I can't think of a better way to end a sermon on eating the body and flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood than partaking of communion, remembering that he was not talking about communion when he said that. He's talking about belief. And so if you have believed in Jesus, then I want to invite you to partake of communion with us. If you have believed in Christ and his death and resurrection on your behalf, I want to invite you, let's celebrate together and remember what God has done for us. If you are one of my many Lutheran friends and you're like, yeah, I still believe in consubstantiation, awesome. Let's partake together and remember together what God has done for us in Jesus. Uh, You may be here and you're like, yeah, listen, I don't believe you. Um, I don't know what to do in communion. I don't believe Jesus uh, my my simple ask is don't partake unless this morning you're ready to trust in Christ. And it, it, it maybe something Jesus said or we said or something we sang sparked in your heart and you just realized for the first time, like, I need to personally trust in Christ. I've never done it. I need to be saved. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead. Maybe you've never asked to forgive you and save you. May today be the day, and if you are ready to do that, when we partake of communion, partake with us, and let your partaking be your nonverbal proclamation. You believe in Jesus, crucified and risen for your sins. So here's what we're going to do. We'll have a time of silence, and in that time of silence, um, or in the song afterwards, you are welcome to get up and get elements if you have not gotten them on the way in. They're going to be over to my right. There's a column over to my left as well, and in between the double doors. What I want to ask you to do is to hold on to the elements until we're done singing. So we'll have a time of silence. We'll sing together, and then we're going to partake of communion. And the reason we partake together is because we are all sinners, And we are all saved in the same way. And we all need faith in the blood of Christ. And it's a symbol of our unity that is in Jesus Christ. So if you'd wait to the end, we're going to partake together. Let's have a time of silence with the Lord.